Matthew chapter 22, we're going to continue our series in Matthew, starting in verse 15. Matthew 22:15. the Lord says this through his word, Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth. And defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, and we are amazed of your glory and your beauty and your majesty. Lord, we pray for fertile hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, would you prepare and break up fallow ground so that the precious seed could be planted deeply and would bear a harvest 30, 60, and 100 fold. Lord, we thank you that you bid us to come. You've prepared for us a table in the presence of our enemies. We love you so much, and we honor you today. We pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this message is, I Pledge Allegiance. I pledge allegiance. We continue following Christ. This is the last week of his earthly life. Friday, this is probably Wednesday when he's given a series of of sermons, of preaching. Friday, he will be crucified. Sunday, he will rise from the dead. Now, Monday, he rode into Jerusalem and was hailed Messiah. Tuesday, He cleansed the temple out of all the money changers and sellers. Now in chapter 21 of Matthew, verse 23, the chief priests and the elders stopped Jesus and they asked him this question. By what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? This is a a common foundational piece as we study these last couple of chapters. By what authority are you doing these things? You know, cleansing the temple, turning over tables, right? Basically, they're saying, show us your credentials. Show us your papers. Show us your rabbinical ordination. Prove to us that you have the right to do what you've done and to say what you have said and claim what you have claimed. Now, the Pharisees, you'll notice in this portion, sent their disciples Why didn't they go themselves? Because long ago they revealed that they were fake, right? So they send their disciples to question Jesus and to pretend to ask him an honest question. Jesus was very harsh with the Pharisees because they were so hypocritical. In the next couple of months, we're going to be studying those chapters where Jesus pronounces a woe, a a curse really upon the Pharisees. And one of the reasons for that uh, we find in in those chapters is that you guys will go travel from land to sea 
to make just one convert. And once you've made that convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you. That's the kind of people that they're sending Jesus' way to trap him. In Luke's gospel of the same event, it says that they sent their spies. And the idea behind a spy is one who has been bribed, right, by others to entrap another. Kind of like a Judas Iscariot. So that's exactly what they were doing. They were masquerading to be on the Lord's side. Uh, Kenneth Wiest in his New Testament commentary uh, speaks of the Pharisees as actors on the stage of life. Just masquerading. All they want to do is for Jesus to fall into the trap, to make an anti-Rome statement, to threaten the Roman system. Then they'd be able to report him to the Romans, right? And the Romans would kill him, and that would be the end of that. But here we find strange bedfellows, right? We've got the anti-Roman Pharisees linked up with the pro-Roman Herodians together against Jesus Christ. Now, you might ask the question, why? Well, you have to understand that the Pharisees recruited the Herodians. Why did the Herodians cooperate? Well, the Herodians didn't like Jesus either. In fact, you'll remember that it was Herod Antipas, or Antipas, that cut off the head of John the Baptist because he condemned his lifestyle, the wretchedness and vileness of his life. So here we see in cahoots the Pharisees and the Herodians, a politically supercharged situation. The Pharisees, excuse me, pro-Israel, pro-Old Testament, and then the Herodians, supporters of Herod, who was the governor of the Roman Empire. And you know, believe me, the Jews didn't like the Herodians, and the Herodians didn't like the Jews. They had zero investment in them. They weren't sympathetic to Judaism, but yet they came together in agreement to trap Jesus. They had a common hatred of Jesus, so they were able for a moment forget their differences, and they had a common desire to eliminate him. So let's think about Jesus' words there in verse 21. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Here they're raising up a political issue, the issue of church and state. The Christian's relationship to the state, as well as in connection to his relationship with God. The Pharisees are aiming to entangle Jesus in a trap. They're trying to hook him on the horns of a dilemma. So they come up they, sh- they show this extraordinary uh, uh, flattery, right? They're trying to butter him up. Teacher, right? They give him this sign of, or this, this title of praise. Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth. And defer to no one, and you are not partial to any. In the ESV version, it says this. You do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. And all these things are true. He is a a teacher of truth. 
He doesn't defer to anyone. He's not swayed by anyone, especially the outward appearances. We know through the prophet uh, Samuel that man looks at the outward, but God looks in the heart, right? So they were right in what they were saying. Nonetheless, there was malice in their hearts. And Jesus was not impressed by their faith. And he would not cower to anyone's opinion. He calls them out. Why are you testing me? There's malice. You hypocrites, right? Now, in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, John gives us some more insight into the heart of Jesus. It says that he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself, Jesus, knew what was in man. Jesus knew the intentions of man. And this gospel, uh, chapter 2 of John, is very interesting. Jesus cleansed the temple twice. The first time was in the beginning of his ministry. The second time was in the end of his ministry. We just studied about it, right? They're in Passion Week. And the first time in John chapter 2, the Pharisees said, by what authority do you do these things? You know, turning over tables and running people out, you know. By what authority do you do these things? And Jesus told them, well, they said, give us a sign. And Jesus said, okay, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It took 46 years to build this temple. What do you mean in three days you'll raise it up, right? But he was talking about his body. And Jesus did many miracles, it says there in John chapter 2. In fact, many put their faith or believed in the name in the name of Christ, because of the signs and wonders that they saw. But in that same chapter, chapter 2 of John, it says that Jesus did not entrust himself. He did not commit himself to those people. Why? Because he knows the intentions of their heart. And he knew the intentions of their heart. He knew the questions before they were asked. And when they were asked him, he knew their intention. He said, why do you test me? Right? They are intending to entangle him to trap him. And their question is this. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Explosive issue when you talk about money, when you talk about taxes. This uh, poll tax or census tax, as as it was called, was used to finance the Roman army. And By imposing this tax, Rome was implying to the Jews, number one, the land belongs to us. And number two, the inhabitants of that land belong to us, meaning the Jewish people. If you know anything about the history of Israel, if you know anything about, if you've ever visited Israel, you know it's all about the land, right? This land didn't come from Rome. This land came from Father Abraham. This land belongs to us, and we don't owe allegiance to anyone, we, much less to, to Rome. So their question is kind of a setup, right? And the question will hang Jesus either way, because if Jesus responds, yes, pay them, he'll be seen as a traitor to the Jewish cause. He'd be answering in favor of the Roman overlords, which would infuriate the Jews, And they hated being occupied by a foreign government, right? Therefore, supporting these taxes would be a betrayal to the Jewish people. Now, if Jesus said, no, don't pay, 
he'd be seen as a revolutionary against Roman rule. So he's in trouble in either way, right? And that's exactly what they wanted. And they're sure that the only thing he can say to them is, don't pay it, right? You're a Jewish Messiah. How are you going to acquiesce to this pagan power of Rome, right? Don't pay it. It's an offense to God. We belong to God. We, we uh, don't take that which belongs to God and give it to pagan Rome. To a Jew, God was the only legitimate king. And their nation was seen as a theocracy, right? And to pay tax to an earthly king was to admit the validity of his kingship and and thereby insulting the one and true God. Like I said, money and taxes was a really big issue. And historically, the Jews wrestled with this. In the year 7 AD, right? There was a man named Judas from Galilee, and he protested against the same census tax, and he raised up a seditious group to protest. Well, Judas was killed, and that was the end of that. But in the year 66 AD, there was another revolution against Rome, protesting against the tax, and this led to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, Matthew wrote his gospel in A.D. 80. There's going to be a quiz afterwards, so you've got to remember all those dates. So, in A.D. 80, so can you imagine the perspective, the hindsight that Matthew has as he's writing these words, right, under the inspiration of God, about protesting the census tax, a big deal. Dare I say, it's a big deal in our own country, right? Remember the slogan, no taxation without representation. Our own country went through that. So the question is this, WWJD, WWJD, what will Jesus do? If I was Forrest Gump, I would start a business with that, right? WWJD. In Matthew 22, what will Jesus do? Show me the coin for the tax. So he takes that coin in his hand. Now, we have to understand this, that only the emperor could mint silver and gold. Any silver coin would reflect the image of the Caesar. It would not only have his image, but it would have some kind of writing identifying him. And this was the common practice among kings to display their sovereignty and their power and their authority. You'll remember um, Akeem Jaffer, right? Akeem Jaffer, he had his image imprinted upon the local currency of Zamunda. You remember that, Akeem Jaffer? I'm the only one. I'm not that old. No, you didn't get it. It's okay. Coming to America, Eddie Murphy, you didn't get it? Okay. It's a silly question. It's a silly question to. Que- it's a silly thing to do to question God, as if they could put Jesus in a box. Either or, right? A gotcha question, right? He has to say yes, or he has to say no. He has to commit. It's a dangerous thing to question God. I think of Job. Remember, he went through all those trials, and he had all these questions. To- to God, you know, why am I going through all these things? What wrong have I done? 
God did not answer his questions. God uh, gave questions to Job. For instance, God asked Job this, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? That's a little intimidating. (laughs) Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know or stretched the line on it? God has this technique of when you ask him a question with malice, he answers with another question. So Jesus says, whose likeness and inscription is this? They say Caesar's. Then Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. Now, if he had stopped right there, he would have communicated, pay up, pay the tax, right? And he w- that would have made him to be out of sorts with the Jews. So they would have been so excited that he had hung himself on this dilemma, right? But he, he opens his mouth, Jesus, and says, he continues, and render to God the things that are God's. So it says that after that they were amazed and walked away with extraordinary wonderment, right? Jesus was looking them right in the eye and saying, am I really dodging the issue here? The Roman emperor was called the high priest. The Roman senators were seen as priests because religion was all mixed up with their secular society. Emperor worship was part of the Roman empire. So every time a Jew had in his hand one of those denarii in his hand with an image of Tiberius, Caesar Tiberius on it, it was the recognition that he held in his hand a little idol. A little idol of a God who was a false God. Every time a Jew was forced, because that was foreign currency. They had their own currency, right? The shekel. They would give shekels for the temple, right? But here, Caesar required one denarius, right? The census poll tax. We need to notice some things here. First of all, Jesus did not define the scope of things that belonged to Caesar. Nor did he define the things, the scope of things that belonged to God. He left it open on purpose. He didn't define that relationship. He only says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. What did Jesus actually do by answering this way? Did he do the politically correct thing, the politically shrewd thing to escape from the dilemma? No. He goes right to the heart issue, right to the heart issue. Our first point, what belongs to God? What belongs to God? Render the things to God that belong to Him. The verb render means to pay back, to give back. It speaks of a debt. It speaks of an obligation. It speaks of a responsibility. Give it back to Caesar. It is His. Give to Caesar what belongs to Him. John Piper says this, everything belongs to God. Caesar belongs to God. All the things that belong to Caesar belong to God. All the rights that Caesar has belong to God. I think Jesus wanted us to linger here over the implications of everything belongs to God. And Caesar is part of everything. Everything Caesar has and all the authority that he rightfully claims is derived from what God has and what God claims. You remember when 
Jesus was on trial for his life before Pilate, and Jesus refused to answer Pilate, right? He remained silent. And Pilate, with all uh, arrogance, said to Jesus, don't you realize that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus' response, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above, from my Father in heaven. Caesar and all his minions have the authority it has only under the sovereignty of God. Therefore, point number two, submission here on earth has limits. Submission here on earth has limits. Caesar's sphere of authority is limited. You'll recall that portion in Acts chapter 5 when the apostles are being told by the high priest and his associates to quit teaching about Jesus and his resurrection. Remember? Peter and the apostles looked at the high priest and said these words, You may think it is right to obey man rather than God, but we must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29 We don't care what authority you have. Our God has superior authority. Yours is limited. We will follow God. There's a limitation put on human authority and state authority. Signs and wonders were taking place amongst the apostles. The whole city of Jerusalem was impacted by this Jesus of Nazareth who had been raised from the dead, remember? In fact, they filled, it says in in Acts 5, they filled, they, they, they... Filled the entire city with this teaching. So the high priest says, hey, everyone's, you're going to win everyone over. Stop doing it. You know, and they threaten them. And then they flogged them. And then the apostles were blessed and rejoiced the fact that they were flogged and they were counted worthy to suffer along with Christ, right? But there's a limitation on the authority of man and state authority. All of our submission to Caesar is shaped by the fact that God owns everything. That's one of the biggest takeaways from this portion of Scripture this morning. That God owns everything. We still do render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Romans 13 is all about submitting to government. But our submission to any government is shaped by the fact that God owns everything. And there's a nuance in that. We submit for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether the emperor, to the emperor as the supreme authority. So he's, Peter was there in Acts chapter 5. He's one of them. And he's saying, yes, submit. But it's a limited submission. We as Christians should be a humble, submissive people. We should keep the speed limit. Boy, I sure got quiet. If we are children, we should obey our parents. Do it, God. If we are church members, we should submit to our elders. If we are wise, we should submit to our husbands. If we are employees, we should get in on time and leave on time and not fudge on what the employer expects of us. We are a people who submit. Amen? Does that feel good? Feel good message. But we do not submit because any 
human authority claims us. It's so important. In the employee relationship, it, our boss isn't our Lord. He's not our Caesar. He's not our master. Jesus is. We work for Jesus, right? We do not submit because of any authority claims us. They don't. We do it for the Lord's sake. Point number three. Christians obey as an act of worship. Christians obey as an act of worship. We pay our taxes. We drive the speed limit. Our disposition is to comply. But we never render to any authority under God absolute allegiance. We never give unlimited, unconditional obedience. We never say, I submit to you because you are my final authority. We always do it for Christ's sake, which turns our, our obedience to human authorities into worship to God. Now, someone might say, well, it belongs to God. Listen, everything belongs to God. And God says that some of the stuff that belongs to me, God speaking, please give to them. You may say, well, wait a minute. The money was given to God through the church. It was given in an act of worship to the church. How can the church give it to the government? Isn't that rendering to Caesar what is given to God? No. I'm giving to Caesar what God told me to give to Caesar out of what he has given me. Out of what he has given to me. And what has he given to me? Well, First Chronicles, King David has the right perspective here. He says, everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. It's not our wisdom or astuteness or entrepreneurship. It's from God's hand we have received. And so that which we've received from God, we give back to him. Now, what was Caesar asking for that only God deserved? What was it? Worship. Worship. And that is the issue. You can pay your tax to Caesar, but don't you dare render to him your worship. That's what he's saying. Don't you dare give to him your adoration and your praise. Don't you swear to him your allegiance as your God and master. That is the issue. So Jesus takes that coin in his hand, that denarius, and he asks them a question. Jesus, the master teacher, responds to their question with a question. Whose likeness and inscription is this? Whose likeness is this? It's the Greek word, Greek word icon. Whose icon is this? Now, for the Jew, upon hearing the word likeness, they would think immediately about the second commandment, so the second of ten commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, this is the second commandment. God says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness. It's the same. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word. Or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. Any likeness. This is a prohibition on forming any image of a false god for adoration. And when Jesus asked whose likeness and image it was, the commandment against worshiping any other god or making an image of a false god would have immediately come to the Pharisees' mind. 
Now, the Pharisees were idolaters. The Pharisees had idols in their life. What was their idol? It was the law. It was the law. Something good they created and made it into a likeness, into a false god. In the Old Testament, there's 613 different commandments. And from those 613 Old Testament commandments, the Pharisees and experts of the law comprised and created 6,000 regulations and traditions based upon those 613 commandments. And they thought by trying or seeking to obey these 6,000 commandments that they would be justified before God. Well, we know no one can keep, no one can even keep 10 commandments, much less 613, much less than 6,000 different commandments. Paul says that no one is justified by the law before God. And that was their God, these traditions, this oral tradition. They had gigantic volumes, right, of traditions from the Talmud and the Mishnah. They said, here it is. If you really want to be sanctified, you really want to be an orthodox believer, you have to put into practice these things. And they themselves were unable to do it, right? The Pharisees were compared to whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. They had, in a sense, started decaying on the inside, just like the dead tradition that they were worshiping, all the while retaining an outward appearance of vitality. Whitewashed tombs. So he says, whose likeness is this? pointing directly to the Pharisees' idolatry, to the idols that they had stacked up in their heart. But there's a second word there in verse 20 of Matthew 22. He said, whose likeness and inscription is this? Now, this is fascinating. Upon hearing the word inscription, the Jews would immediately think of a portion of Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's referred to as the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohim Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one, right? Stressing Israel's worship of God as exclusive of all other gods. The Shema then commands the person to love the Lord with all his heart, and his soul, and all his strength. And then the Shema then required them to keep those words inscribed. Here you go. It's the same word, the same Greek word for the Hebrew concept. To keep those words inscribed in their hearts, on their doorposts, and on the gates of the city. I think every homeschooler is familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 6, right? It exhorts the fathers to diligently instruct their children, right? When they're sitting in their house, when they're walking by the way, when they rise up, when they go to bed, to constantly bring to memory these words, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now, what's the big deal? God is one. We all know that, right? Judaism was not birthed in a vacuum, Judaism was birthed in the midst of all this polytheism, all these other false gods, right? 
And God said, in, 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 in the midst of all that darkness, there is only one and true God. Monotheism. Monotheism. And you need to understand that. And he is worthy of all your heart, of all your soul, and all your strength. And you're to inscribe these things. Put it on your hand. Put frontals between your eyes. Bring to remembrance these words constantly, right? Keep them inscribed. So that's what Jesus is saying to them, to the Pharisees. You forgot to inscribe the most important things in your heart. And the reason is, is because you have a divided allegiance. Idolatry and a divided allegiance. Jesus is challenging the Pharisees to determine what rightfully belongs to God and what rightfully belongs to Caesar. That put the Pharisees between a rock and a hard place. By referring to the second commandment in the Shema, God was reminding them that God was owed exclusive allegiance and total love and worship. What does exclusive mean? It means restricted, unique, unshared. Unshared. Exclusive allegiance to God. And again, it's because everything belongs to Him. Even the land, remember? They, they said, well, Rome doesn't, the, the land doesn't belong to Rome. We received it from Abraham, our father. The land is ours. No, 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 no. The land belongs to God. He tells us that in Leviticus chapter 25. The land belongs to me. He also says, mine is the silver and mine is the gold. Even those denarius coins, right, belong to me. He's challenging the Pharisees to choose their allegiance. Will they love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and strength? Or will they continue to try to divide their allegiance between God and their idols? There's an amazing verse that I discovered while I was staying this week in Luke chapter 7. I think we're going to put it on the screen. Luke 7.30, it says this. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. I find this amazing that God had a plan for the Pharisees and for the elders and for all these false teachers. He had a plan for them, but they rejected that plan, God's purpose. God has a purpose for you. God has a purpose for me. What was God's purpose for the Pharisees? It says they were not baptized by John the Baptist. Nothing magical, getting baptized in the River Jordan. Jordan, I had that experience years ago. Nothing special about being baptized in that Jordan or even being uh, baptized by John the Baptist. But it speaks of repentance, right? God's purpose for the Pharisees was for the repentance, that they would repent of their sin. They They would see that those traditions and oral law were hindering them from following God, from following God with all their heart, soul, and strength. And then, by repenting, that they would receive and acknowledge Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, as the Messiah, as their Redeemer. They rejected God's purpose for themselves. May it never be said of us, right? Joshua, we all love Joshua, right? He led the charge. Him and Caleb were the only two of the original band from Egypt into the promised land of Canaan, remember? When they finally got into Canaan, Joshua gave this exhortation to all the people. 
He said, fear the Lord and serve him with all sincerity and truth. And put away your idols. Put away your idols. I think it's an amazing thing that the Jews being under 400 years of bondage in Egypt finally got to get delivered. And as soon as they get to the promised land, they fall right into idolatry. I shouldn't be surprised. That's my life. Maybe that's yours. There's such a propensity for idolatry. But I love Joshua exhorting the people. And then he says these words, Choose this day, choose this day whom you will serve. Pledge your allegiance right now. And then Joshua had the moxie with his family right behind him. He had the moxie to say, As for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. In spite of the fact that his compatriots had fallen into idolatry that didn't want him as leader, he said, as for me and my house, my allegiance is to God. It's not to man. You and I, brothers and sisters, were bought with a price. And in Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us this. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, which is your service of worship. I've often thought, why does Paul exhort us to present our bodies? Why wouldn't we just present our minds or our hearts? He says your bodies. And I think the idea is it's, it's heart, soul, and strength. All that we are, we're to present to him as a living sacrifice, which is our spiritual service. All that we are. There's a hymn we used to sing when we were in adult Sunday school that says, all to Jesus I surrender. I surrender all, right? I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Notice that the lyrics do not say, they do not say, I surrender half. Right? It says, I surrender all. Maybe Ananias and Sapphira could only say in the best of days, I surrender half. We surrender half, right? But the hymn says, I surrender all. To the dismay of many, Jesus does not encourage us to refuse to pay taxes, even to an evil king. To the contrary, Jesus does encourage us to stop refusing to give God what belongs to him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, even now as you begin to hover and you begin to penetrate, you begin to open hearts in my heart, God, Would you search our hearts, God? Would you know us? Would you see if there be any way of iniquity, any perversity in our hearts, God? Any idols that might be there, God, would you expose those things? And we want them to put aside. You deserve full allegiance, total allegiance. And this morning, God, we want to pledge our allegiance to you and to you alone. You paid the ultimate sacrifice. You went to the cross for us because we were not able to. 
We were not able to placate the holiness and wrath of God. It was you, Jesus, because of your love for us, you were willing to be our substitute at the cross of Calvary. We were, we were Barabbas. We were on dead, death row. You took our place to redeem us and to save us. And we're so grateful. So now, God, we want to express our sacrifice of worship to you, God. Receive it now that comes from a pure heart. In Jesus' name.